Chapter 16, Part 3 of The Cambridge Modern History, Volume 2, The Reformation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Laura Kumanova. Chapter 16 The Anglican Settlement and the Scottish Reformation by F. W. Maitland. Part 3 At a moment of strain and peril, a wonderfully durable settlement had been made. There is cause for thinking that the Queen's advisers had been compelled to abandon considerable parts of a lengthy program, but the great lines had been drawn and were permanent. For this reason, they can hardly be described in words that are both just and few, but perhaps we may make a summary of those points, which were the most important to the men of 1559. A radical change in doctrine, worship, and discipline has been made by Queen and Parliament against the will of prelates and ecclesiastical councils. The legislative power of the convocations is once more subjected to royal control. The derivation of episcopal from royal jurisdiction has been once more asserted in the words of Henry VIII. Appeal from the courts of the church lies to royal delegates who may be laymen. What might fairly be called a plenitude of ecclesiastical jurisdiction of the corrective sort can be, and at once is, committed to delegates who constitute what is soon known as the court of high commission, and strongly resembles the consistory of a German prince. Obstinate heresy is still a capital crime, but practically the bishops have little power of forcing heretics to stand a trial, unless parliament and convocation otherwise ordain. Only the wilder sectaries will be in danger of burning. There is no liberty of cult. The prayer book prescribes the only lawful form of common worship. The clergyman who adopts any other, even in a private chapel, commits a crime. So does he who procures this aberration from conformity. Everyone must go to church on Sunday and bide prayer and preaching or forfeit twelve pence to the use of the poor. Much also can be done to ensure conformity by excommunication, which has imprisonment behind it. The papal authority is abolished. Clergy and officeholders can be required to swear that it is not. If they refuse the oath, they lose office and benefice. If anyone advisedly maintains that authority, he forfeits his goods. On a third conviction, he is a traitor. The service book is not such as will satisfy all ardent reformers but their foreign fathers in the faith think it is not intolerable, and the glad news goes out that the mass is abolished. The word Protestant, which is rapidly spreading from Germany, comes as a welcome name. In the view of an officially inspired apologist of the Elizabethan settlement, those who are not Papists are Protestants. The requisite laws had been made, but whether they would take effect was very uncertain. The new oath was not tendered to the judges, and some of them were decided Romanists. Nor was the validity of the statutes unquestioned, for it was by no means so plain as it is now, is that an act against which the spiritual lords have voted in a body may still be an act of the three estates. Gradually, in the summer and autumn, the bishops were called upon to swear. They refused and were deprived. It is not certain that the one-week brother, Kitchen of Landaff, actually swore the oath, though he promised to exact it from others. Futile hopes seem to have been entertained 
that Tunstall and Heath would at least take part in the consecration of their Protestant successors. Such successors were nominated by the Queen. But to make bishops of them was not easy. Apparently, a government bill dealing with this matter had come to naught. Probably the Queen's advisers had intended to abolish this canonical election. They procured its abolition in Ireland, on the ground that it was inconsistent with the royal supremacy. But for some cause or another, the English Parliament had restored that grotesque Henrican device, the compulsory election of a royal nominee. By a personal interview, Elizabeth secured the conversion of the dean of the two metropolitan churches, that pliant old diplomat Nicholas Watton. When sees and benefices were rapidly falling vacant, his adhesion was of great importance if all was to be done in an orderly way. But given the election, there must still be confirmation and consecration. Statute required it. The cooperation of four bishops would be necessary if Matthew Parker was to sit where Reginald Pole had sat. Four men in Episcopal orders might be found, for instance. William Barlow, of whose Protestant religion there could be no doubt, since Albert of Prussia had lately attested it. But these men would not be in possession of England's seas. Moreover, it seemed to have been doubted whether the Edwardian ordinal had been revived as part of the Edwardian prayer book. Cecil was puzzled, but equal to the occasion. In a document redolent of the papal chancery, Elizabeth supplied all defects, and at length on the 17th of December in the chapel of Lambeth. Parker was consecrated with Edwardian rites by Barlow, Scorey, Coverdale, and Hodgkin. The story of a simpler ceremony at the Nags Head Tavern was not concocted until long afterwards. It should have been for pendants a Protestant fable which told of a dramatic scene between Elizabeth and the Catholic prelates, and an Anglican fable which strove to suggest that the prayer book was sanctioned by a synod of bishops and clergy. A large number of deans and canons followed by examples set by the bishops. Of their inferiors, hardly more than two hundred, so it seems, were deprived for refusing the oath. The royal commissioners treated the hesitating priests with patient forbearance, and the meaning of the oath was minimized by an ably worded proclamation. We may conjecture that many of those who swore expected another turn of the always-turning wheel. However, Elizabeth succeeded in finding creditable occupants for the vacant dignitaries. Of Parker and some of his suffragans, more than this might be said. The new service was introduced without exciting disturbances. The altars and roods were pulled down, tables were purchased, and a coat of whitewash veiled the pictured saints from view. Among the laity, there was much despondent indifference. Within a dozen years, there had been four great changes in worship, and no good had come of it all. For some time afterwards, there are many country gentlemen whom the bishops describe as indifferent in religion. Would the Queen's Church secure them and their children? That question could not be answered by one who only looked at England. From the first, Elizabeth and Cecil, who were entering into their long partnership, had looked abroad. The month of May, 1559, which saw the ratification of the Treaty of Cateau-Cambrésis, is a grand month in the annals of the heresy which was to be destroyed. A hideous act of faith at Valladolid may show us that Catholicism is safe in Spain. But the English Parliament ends its work, 
a French Reformed church shapes itself in the Synod of Paris, and Scotland bursts into flame. In 1558, we saw it glowing. Mary of Guise was temporizing. She had not yet obtained the crown matrimonial for the Dauphin. In the winter Parliament she had her way. The crown was to be, but never was, carried to her son-in-law. His father had just ceased his intrigues with English Protestants, and was making peace in order that he might be busy among the Protestants of France. The regent of Scotland was given to understand that the time for tolerance was past. In March 1559, the Scottish prelates followed the example of their English brethren and uttered their non-possimus. They proposed to remedy many an indefensible abuse, but to new beliefs there could be no concession. The Queen Mother fixed Easter Day for the return of all men to the Catholic worship. The order was disregarded. On the 10th of May, the more notorious of the preachers were to answer at Stirling for their misdeeds. They collected at Perth, with Protestant lords around them. At this moment, Elizabeth's best friend sprang into the arena. John Knox had been fuming at Dieppe. Elizabeth, enraged at his ill-timed blast, denied him a safe conduct. Francois Morel, too, the French reformer, implored Calvin to keep this firebrand out of England, lest all should be spoilt. But if Knox chose to revisit his native land, that was no affair of Elizabeth's, and he was predestined to win, for Calvinism the most durable of its triumphs. He landed in Scotland on the 2nd of May, and was at Perth by the 11th. Then there was a sermon. A stone was thrown, an image was broken, and the churches of St. Johnston were wrecked. Before the end of the month, there were two armed hosts in the field. There were more sermons, and where Knox preached the idols fell, and monks and nuns were turned adrift. There were futile negotiations and disregarded truces. At the head of the belligerent congregation rode Glencarn, Argyll, and Lord James. Chateau Helralt was still with the regent, and she had a small force of disciplined Frenchmen. At the end of July, a temporary truce was made at Leith. The congregation could bring a numerous host, of the medieval sort, into the field, but could not keep it there. However, as the power of the French soldiers was displayed, the revolutionary movement became more and more national. The strife, if it was between Catholic and Calvinist, was also a strife for the delivery of Scotland from a foreign army. Nonetheless, there was a revolt. Thenceforth, Calvinism often appears as a rebellious religion. This, however, is its first appearance in that character. Calvin had long been a power in the world of the Reformed theology, and his death, 1564, was not far distant. But in 1559, the Count of Feria was at pains to tell King Philip that this Calvin is a Frenchman and a great heretic. March 19. Knox, when he preached the rascal multitude into iconoclastic fury, was setting an example to Go and Huguenots. What would Elizabeth think of it? Throughout the winter and spring, Englishmen and Scots, who had been dragged into war by their foreign masters, had been meeting on the border and talking first of armistice and then of peace. Already in January, Maitland of Lethington had a strong desire to speak with Sir William Cecil, and since then had been twice in London. He was the regent's secretary, 
conforming in religion as Cecil had conformed, but it is likely that the core of such creed as he had was unionism. The news that came from Scotland in May can hardly have surprised the English secretary. Some great consequences must needs follow. This was his quiet comment. May 26. Diplomatic relations with France had just been resumed. Nicholas Throckmorton, one of those able men who begin to collect around Elizabeth, had gone to reside there as her ambassador, had gone to practice there and exacerbate the garboils there. One of the first bits of news that he sends home is that Aaron has been summoned to court from Poitou, where he has been calvinizing, has disobeyed the summons, and cannot be found. May 30. The guises connect Aaron's disappearance with Throckmorton's advent. And who shall say that they are wrong? In June, Cecil heard from the border that the Scottish lords were devising how this young man could be brought home and married you-know-where. "'You have a queen,' said a Scot to Throckmorton, "'and we are Prince the Earl of Arran, marriable both, and the chief upholders of God's religion.'" Arran might soon be King of Scotland. The Dauphiness, who at the French court was being called Queen of England, did not look as if she was long for this world. Throckmorton noted her swoons. Aaron had escaped to Geneva. Early in July, Elizabeth was busy, and so was Calvin, over the transmission of this invaluable youth to the quarter where he could best serve God and the English Queen. Petitions for aid had come from Scotland. Cecil foresaw what would happen. The Protestants were to be helped, first with promises, next with money, and last with arms. July 8. But to go beyond the first stage was hazardous. The late King of England was only a few miles off with his fleet and veteran troops. He was being married by proxy to a French princess. He had thoughts of enticing Catherine Grey out of England, in order that he might have another candidate for the throne, if it were necessary to depose the disobedient Elizabeth. And could Elizabeth openly support these rebels? In the answer to that question lay the rare importance of Aaron. The Scottish uproar must become a constitutional movement directed by a prince of the blood royal against a French attempt to deprive a nation of its independence. Cecil explained to Calvin that if true religion is to be supported, it must first convert great noblemen, June 22. Then the danger from France seemed to increase. There was a mischance at a tournament that Henry II was dead, July 10. The next news was that the House of Guise ruleth, July 13. In truth, this was good news. Elizabeth's advisory was no longer in united France. The Lorrainers were not France. Their enemies told them that they were not French. But the Duke and Cardinal were ruling France. They came to power as the uncles of the young king's wife, and soon there might be a boy born who would be voila Tudor Stuart Guise. A Guise was ruling Scotland also, and the rebellion against her was hanging fire. So early in August Cecil's second stage was reached, and Ralph Sadler was carrying three thousand pounds to the border. He knew his Scotland. Henry Eighth had sent him there on a fool's errand. There would be better management this time. In the same month, Philip turned his back on the Netherlands 
never to see them more. Thenceforth he would be the secluded king of a distant country. After Paul the Fourth died, and for four months the Roman Church had no supreme governor, the supreme governor of the English Church could breathe more freely. She kept her St. Bartholomew, August 24. There was burning in Bartholomew Fair, burning in Smithfield, but only of wooden roods and Mary's and John's and such like popish gear. It is done of purpose to confirm the Scottish revolt. Such was a guess made at Brussels, September 2. And it may have been right, for there was little of the natural iconoclast in Elizabeth. A few days later, August 29, Aaron was safely and secretly in her presence, and thence was smuggled into Scotland. Probably she took his measure. He was not quite sane, but would be useful. Soon afterwards, Philip's ambassador knew that she was fomenting tumults in Scotland through a heretic preacher called Knox. That was unkindly said, but not substantially untrue. Early in October, the congregation began once more to take an armed shape. Chatelherault, that unstable second person, had been brought over by his impetuous son. The French troops in Scotland had been reinforced. The struggle was between Scot and Frenchmen. So to the horror of bishops-elect, whose consecration had not yet been managed, the table in Elizabeth's chapel began to look like an altar with cross and candles. She will not favor the Scots in their religion, said Guy de Noailles, the French ambassador. She's afraid, said the Cardinal of Lorraine. She is going to marry the Archduke Charles, who is coming here in disguise, said many people. Surely she wished that just those comments should be made, and so Dr. Cox, by this time elect of Eli, had to stomach cross and candles as best he might. The host of the congregation arrived at Edinburgh. A manifesto declared that the regent was deposed, October 21. She and the French were fortifying Laith. The castle was held by the neutral Lord Erskine. But once more the extemporized army began to melt away. Treasure sent by Elizabeth was captured by a border ruffian, James Hepburn, Earl of Bothwell, who was to play a part in coming tragedies. The insurgents fled from Edinburgh, November 6. In negotiation with Cecil, Knox was showing the worldly wisdom that underlay his Hebraic frenzies. He knew the weak side of his fellow countrymen. Without more aid from England, the movement would fail. Knox, however, was not presentable at court. Lethington was. The regent's secretary had left her and had carried to the opposite camp the statecraft that it sorely needed. He saw a bright prospect for his native land and took the road to London. Cecil's third stage was at hand. There were long debates in the English council. There were Philippians in it, and all that passed there was soon known at the French embassy. The queen was irresolute. Even Bacon was for delay. But though some French ships had been wrecked, others were ready, and the danger to Scotland, and through Scotland to England, was very grave. At length, Cecil and Lethington won their cause. An army under the Duke of Norfolk was to be raised and placed on the border. Large supplies of arms had been imported from the dominions of the Catholic king. Bargains for professed soldiers were struck with German princes, 
William Winter, master of the ordnance, was to take fourteen ships to the fourth. He might, as of his own hand, pick a quarrel with the French, but there was to be no avowed war, December 16. On the morrow, Dr. Parker was consecrated. He had been properly shocked by Knox's doings. God keep us from such visitation as Knox hath attempted in Scotland, the people to be orderers of things. November 6. If in that autumn the people of Scotland had not ordered things in a summary way, Dr. Parker's tenure of the archiepiscopate might have been precarious. A few days later, and there was once more a pope. December 25. This time, a sane pope, Pius IV, who would have to deplore the loss, not only of England, but of Scotland also. God of his mercy, said Lethington, had removed that difference of religion. Once more the waves were kind to Elizabeth. They repulsed the Marquis of Elbeuf, René of Lorraine, and suffered winter to pass. All the news that came from France was good. It told of unwillingness that national treasure should be spent in the cause of the guises, of a dearth of recruits for Scotland, of heretics burnt and heretics rescued, of factions and religion fomented by the great. Something was very wrong in France, for envoys came thence with soft words. Strike now, was Throckmorton's counsel. They only seek to gain time. So a pact was signed at Berwick, February 27, 1560, between Norfolk and the Scottish lords who acted on behalf of the second person of the realm of Scotland. Elizabeth took Scotland, its liberties, its nobility, its expectant heir under her protection, and the French were to be expelled. On second thoughts, nothing was published about the profession of Christ's true religion. Every French envoy spoke softer than the last. Mary Stuart had assumed the arms of England because she was proud of being Elizabeth's cousin. The title of Queen of England was taken to annoy, not Elizabeth, but Mary Tudor. All this meant the tumult of Amboise, March 14-20. to 20. Behind that strange essay in rebellion, behind La Renaudie, Men had seen Condé, and behind Condé, two dim figures, Jean Calvin and the English Queen. Calvin's acquittal seemed deserved. The profession of Christ's true religion was not to be advanced by so ill-laid a plot. But a very ill-laid plot might cripple France at this critical moment, and before we absolve Elizabeth, we wish to know why a certain Tremaine was sent to Brittany, where the plotters were gathering and whether Chantonnet, Granville's brother, was right in saying that Le Renaudie had been at the English court. Certain it is that Throckmorton had intrigued with Anthony of Navarre, with the Vedam of Chartres, with every enemy of the Guises. He was an apt pupil in the school that Renard and Noailles had founded in England. A little later, May 23, messages from Condé to the Queen were going round by Strasbourg, and in June, Tremaine brought from France a scheme which would put Breton or Norman towns into English hands, a scheme from which Cecil as yet recoiled as from a bottomless pit. Be all this as it may, the tumult of Amboise fell pat into Cecil's scheme, and on the 29th of March, Lord Grey crossed the border with English troops. The Scottish affair then takes this shape, 
a small but disciplined force of Frenchmen in the fortified town of Leith, the regent in Edinburgh Castle, which is held by the neutral Erskine, English ships in the fourth, an English and Scottish army before Leith, very few Scots openly siding with the Queen Mother, the French seeking to gain time. We hastened to the end. An assault failed, but hunger was doing its work. The regent died on the 11th of June. Even stern Protestants have a good word for the gallant woman. Cecil went into Scotland to negotiate with French plenipotentiaries. He wrung from them the Treaty of Edinburgh, which was signed on the 6th of July. The French troops were to quit Scotland. The French king and queen were never thereafter to use the arms and style of England. Compensation for the insult to her title was to be awarded to Elizabeth by arbitrators or the king of Spain. A pact concluded between Francis and Mary on the one hand and their Scottish subjects on the other was to be observed. The pact itself was humiliating. There was to be a pardon for the insurgents. There were to be but six score French soldiers in the land. A Scottish council was to be appointed. In a word, Scotland was to be for the Scots. But the lowest point was touched when the observance of this pact between sovereign and rebels was made a term in the treaty between England and France. Cecil and famine were inexorable. We had to sign, said the French commissioners, or four thousand brave men would have perished before our eyes and Scotland would have been utterly lost. And so the French troops were deported from Scotland and the English army came home from a splendid exploit. The military display, it is true, had not been credible. There had been disunion, if no worse, among the captains. There had been peculation, desertion, sheer cowardice. All the martial glory goes to the brave besieged. But for the first time, an English army marched out of Scotland, leaving gratitude behind. Perhaps the truest victory that England had won was won over herself. Not a word had been publicly said of that old suzerainty. No spoil had been taken, not a town detained. Knox included in his liturgy a prayer that there might never more be war between Scotland and England, and that prayer has been fulfilled. There have been wars between British factions, but never another truly national war between the two nations. Elizabeth, in her first two years, had done what none of her ancestors could do, for by the occasion of her religion she had obtained the amity of Scotland, and thus had God blemished the fame of the great men of the world through the doings of a weak woman. Such was the judgment of a daughter of France and a mother in the Protestant Israel of René, the venerable Duchess of Ferrara, another observer, Hubert Longuet, said that the English were so proud of the conversion of Scotland that they were recovering their old insolence and would be the very people to defy the imminent council at Trent. The tone of Catholic correspondence changes. The Elizabeth, who was merely rushing to her ruin, will now set all Europe alight in her downward course. That young woman's conduct, when we now examine it, will not seem heroic. As was often to happen in coming years, she had been pursuing two policies at once, and she was ready to fall back upon an Austrian marriage if the Scottish revolt miscarried. But this was not what men saw at the time. 
What was seen was that she and Cecil had played and won a masterly game. An Englishman must have felt that the change of religion coincided with a transfer of power from incapable to capable hands. All this had been done not only without Spanish help, but, so a patriot might say, in defiance of Spain. To discover Philip's intentions had been difficult, and in truth he had been of two minds. Elizabeth was setting the worst of examples. Say what she would, she was encouraging a Protestant revolt against a Catholic king. She was doing this in sight, and with the hardly concealed applause of the Netherlanders. A friar who dared to preach against her at Antwerp went in fear of his life. Whole families of Flemings were already taking refuge in England. Philip's new French wife was coming home to him. His mother-in-law, Catherine de Medici, implored him to stop Elizabeth from playing the fool. He had in some kind made himself responsible for the religious affairs of England, by assuring the Pope that all would yet be well. But the intense dread of France, the outcome of long wars, could not be eradicated and was reasonable enough. He dared not let the French subdue Scotland and threaten England on both sides. Moreover, he was for the moment miserably poor. Margaret of Parma, his regent in the Netherlands, had hardly a crown for current expenses, and the estates would grant nothing. So, in public, he scolded and lectured Elizabeth, while in private, he hinted that what she was doing should be done quickly. The French, too, though they asked his aid, hardly wished him to fulfill his promise of sending troops to Scotland. Then his navy was defeated by the opportune Turk, May 11, and the Spaniards suspected that the French, if guiltless of, were not displeased at the disaster. This was not all. The Pope also had been humiliated. The conciliatory Pius IV had not long been on the throne before he sent to Elizabeth a courteous letter, May 5, 1560. Vincent Parpalia, the abbot of San Salutore at Turin, once the secretary of Cardinal Pole, was to carry it to her as nuncio. She would lend him her ear, and a strong hint was given to her that she could be legitimated. When she heard that the nuncio was coming, she was perhaps a little frightened. The choice between recantation and the anathema seemed to lie before her, so she talked catholically with the Spanish ambassador. But Philip, when he heard the news, was seriously offended. He saw French intrigue, and the diplomatic machinery of the Spanish monarchy was set in motion to procure the recall of the nuncio. All manner of reasons could be given to the Pope to induce a cancellation of his rash act. Pius was convinced or overawed. Margaret of Parma stopped Parpalia at Brussels. How to extricate the Pope from the adventure without loss of dignity was then the difficult question. Happily, it could be said that the Pole secretary was personally distasteful to Philip, who had once imprisoned Parpalia as a French spy. So at Brussels, he enjoyed himself for some months, then announced to Elizabeth that after all he was not coming to her, and in the friendliest way sent her some Italian gossip, September 8. He said that he should go back by Germany, and, when he turned aside to France, Margaret of Parma knew what to think, namely that there had been a French plot to precipitate a collision between Pius and Elizabeth. At the French court the disappointed nuncio, 
made a very lewd discourse of the queen, her religion, and proceedings. As to Elizabeth, she had answered this first papal approach by throwing the Catholic bishops into prison. And then, it is to be feared that she, or someone on her behalf, told how the Pope had offered to confirm her Book of Common Prayer, if only she would fall down and worship him. End of section 60. Recorded by Laura Kumanova, San Francisco, May 18, 2021.